This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, there are two stories from the Grimm brothers. The first is the story of Rapunzel, where you'll see that not letting your child cut their hair can actually be a really great security system. The second is the story of the brave little tailor, and you'll see how a cheese-stained shirt and an embroidered belt can help you beat a giant in a throwing contest. On the Creature of the Week, you'll see how, if you have an aging weasel as a pet, keep an eye on him, because he may just get together with his other old weasel friends and burn down your village. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 29, Upward Mobility. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Today's a little bit of both, with the story of Rapunzel and the story of a brave little tailor, both of which were collected by the Brothers Grimm. We haven't talked about Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm yet on the podcast, even though they collected the original versions of many stories with popular adaptations today. They collected stories from all around Germany in the 1800s, from both the people and other collections. Honestly, the Grimm brothers are interesting, but that's all we really need to know before jumping into the story of Rapunzel. This story is from the first edition of the Grimm brothers' folktales. The husband jumped the fence. This was lunacy. He was putting his life at risk because of his pregnant wife's cravings. His wife had been staring for days at the plant in the garden across the way. Soon, it had become all she could think about. She didn't want him to just go to the market and buy any old plant either. The wife wanted this one, from this garden. The only problem? The garden was owned by a sorceress. And I'm not sure how a known sorceress ends up in the house across the street, or how awkward that HOA meeting would be, but the man didn't have any time to think about it. He sprinted toward the plant. In English, it's called the Rampion plant. But in German, it goes by a different name, Rapunzel. It's a type of wildflower that's cultivated like a plant. The leaves are like spinach, and the root is like a parsnip. The man looked at the house of the sorceress. The candles and fires were all out, and he yanked the plants from the ground, carrying off as many as he could hold in his arms. As the woman scarfed down the leaves and the roots, she told her husband that, when he goes back tomorrow night, he should really try to get the whole root. Tomorrow night? The next night, the husband watched the house of the sorceress until the candles went out. He waited for another half hour before climbing quietly over the stone wall. Dropping to his knees, he started frantically digging the plants from their beds, glancing up at the house from time to time, when he heard, behind him in the shadow of the wall, you must be pretty brave to come to my garden and steal my Rapunzel. This will cost you. The man kicked away in the dirt. Had she been there the whole time? He explained to the sorceress that his wife was pregnant and craving this. He was sorry he had come in here. It was a mistake. Oh, yeah, it was a mistake, the sorceress said. A costly one. The man could take as much Rapunzel as he wanted, but in exchange, the couple would need to give the sorceress their baby when it was born. The man was terrified. Yeah, he said, agreeing shockingly quickly to training his firstborn child for a vegetable. Maybe he just wanted to get out of the garden but the stories don't really say. The sorceress assured the man that she would take good care of the child, and the witch gave him bags and bags of the Rapunzel to take back to his pregnant wife. The wife met her husband at the door. 
she saw his many bags, and he took her inside and sat her down. Okay, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news, I got a lot of Rapunzel. The bad news, well, I may have inadvertently traded our child to a sorceress for this root vegetable, and in order to not be killed by said sorceress. Months later, the mother was in labor, and it was finally time to push. Only a midwife had been allowed in, and all the doors were locked and barred. The husband had a club in the corner, in the event that the sorceress tried to show up. The wife pushed and pushed, and moments later, their beautiful baby girl was born. The midwife held the baby, and then looked up at the father. He froze, watching the disguise dissipate like smoke from the face of the sorceress. With the baby in her arms, the witch that had come in disguised as the midwife turned and both she and the newborn were gone in a cloud of smoke. The parents stared, mouths agape in disbelief. The father ran to where the sorceress had been, but there was nothing. He grabbed his club and unbarred the door, running out into the street, into the house of the sorceress. The gate was locked, but he threw his club over the stone wall and then scrambled over himself. Finding himself in the garden, he was shocked. Everything was dead and withered. He ran up to the front door and kicked it in. The sound echoed through a completely empty house. Regardless, he searched through every room and found it completely cleared. The sorceress had planned on this. She had stolen their child, and now she was gone from the village. He went back to his wife, whose look of hope faded when she saw her husband's face. That night, instead of holding the baby they had hoped and prayed for for years, they held each other and wept for her, knowing that she was somewhere in the wide and dangerous world, being raised by her kidnapper. Almost 18 years later, a prince was riding through the deep section of a forest when he heard a beautiful, almost otherworldly singing coming from even deeper in the woods. He followed it to a clearing where he found a tower about six stories tall. He could see, from the shelter of the forest, a beautiful girl with golden hair sitting at the top, singing. He sat and watched her for several more minutes until her song ended and she went back inside and out of view. He knew, from just hearing her voice and seeing her from a distance of at least 200 feet, that he must marry her. He rode to the tower, but saw that it didn't have a door at the base, and, as far as he could tell, it was solid stone all the way up. There wasn't even a stairway around the outside, just a ring of thorn bushes surrounding the bottom. How the girl had made it up to the top was a mystery. About to call out to her, the prince heard somebody approaching. He rode back to the edge of the forest, and ducked to safety just in time. The old sorceress was walking back from a nearby village. She yelled from below, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair to me, and waited. She had named Rapunzel after the plant with which the young girl had been purchased. Rapunzel, however, didn't even know her name was a wildflower. The sorceress laughed. The girl didn't know anything. She had never even left the tower. Years ago, the sorceress had taken the child to this tower, to raise her as her own. She was actually pretty nice to the girl, and a good mother. 
if you don't count kidnapping her as a baby and keeping her forever imprisoned in a tower. Rapunzel loved the woman she believed to be her mother, and seeing as she knew nothing of the outside world, she had only the most fleeting of desires to leave. Sitting at the edge of the forest, the prince had heard the words and watched the princess throw down what looked like a long, golden rope. He knew how he could get in. He camped out in the forest overnight until he saw what appeared to be the girl's mother leaving the next morning. As soon as she was out of sight, the prince crept to the bottom of the tower. Trying his best to imitate an old woman, he called out, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair to me. Wait, hair? he thought, as the big braid smacked him on the top of the head. It was hair. A long, thick rope of blonde hair. He could see that it was looped around the hook at the top, and he began climbing as Rapunzel pulled him up. Rapunzel pulled and pulled, and once his face passed the edge of the window, she stopped. To him, she was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. To her, well, she didn't know what to think. She almost screamed and dropped him when she saw that he was a handsome prince and not her mother. Then, even though she had never seen a man before in her life, she found herself attracted to him in a way she didn't quite understand. Instead of immediately sending him plummeting six stories to the ground, Rapunzel let him take hold of the window and pull himself inside the tower. They learned all about each other. He learned that she had lived her whole life in this tower, isolated from other people. She learned both that there were other people and that it was incredibly strange to live your whole life in a tower, isolated from them. Also, normal people get haircuts once in a while. Over the course of several weeks, the prince came to see Rapunzel daily. They got to know each other very well, and then, one day, they got to know each other in the biblical sense of the word. A few months of that passed, and the prince would visit whenever he could get away from his kingdom. They devised a plan to leave together. Every time he came to visit her, he would bring a strand of silk, which she would contribute to a ladder she was weaving. When it was complete, they could both leave together and be married. One day, the prince came by as he always did. Today was the day. Rapunzel was going to escape with him, and they would be married that evening. He stood at the bottom and yelled for her to throw down her hair. The braids thudded to the ground as they had each time he had visited. He wrapped his wrist and began to climb as Rapunzel helped him up from her end. It took nearly twice as long this time though, and for some reason it was dark inside. He climbed until he was standing on the edge of the window and peered inside. Rapunzel? At that moment, the sorceress emerged from the darkness. The prince gasped, and just as he pulled his hand back to grab the braid, the sorceress let go of her end of Rapunzel's hair. The long braid fluttered to the ground below. She had cut Rapunzel's hair and kept it there. Now, the prince had no way out. His eyes returned to the dark tower, the sorceress now directly in front of him. You came for Rapunzel, but that little bird is no longer sitting in her nest, and she'll never sing again. The cat got her, and she'll scratch your eyes out as well. You'll never see your love again, the sorceress said. The prince reached for his sword, but unfortunately, that meant moving his hands from the window's edge. The sorceress had only to put out one finger and give the slightest push. The prince's eyes widened, and he immediately put his hand out to grab the window's edge. But he was too late. He dropped backwards, off the ledge, and into the air. He fell, gaining momentum the more stories he dropped, hitting the ground hard. 
the sorceress didn't watch him fall. She didn't need to. She knew that he would fall face first into the thorns surrounding the base of the tower. He would be horribly marred and blinded by the thorns, but he would survive. She thought that he got the punishment he deserved. Earlier that day, before the sorceress left, Rapunzel had been having a difficult time. Her dresses weren't buttoning the way they had in the past. Over the past few months, she found that she tired more easily, was sick on an almost daily basis, and her stomach was growing at an alarming rate. Now she couldn't even fasten her clothing. She went to see her mother to ask, when she was out, if she could get some larger dresses. Something was going on with Rapunzel's stomach. The sorceress immediately knew what was going on, and she was livid when she saw that Rapunzel was pregnant, and soon the girl broke down telling the old woman all about her plans to leave the tower as soon as the silk ladder was ready. Without a hint of self-awareness, the sorceress, who had kidnapped her as a baby, muttered, You godless child, took a deep breath, and picked up her long knife. She walked calmly toward the girl, staring into her eyes. Rapunzel backed up, but there were only so many places one could run with 70-foot-long braids in a tower with no doors. Soon, her back was against the wall. But the sorceress couldn't kill the girl. Whatever oddly misplaced anger she had toward the girl, she had still raised little Rapunzel literally from birth. She grabbed her beautiful hair and severed it. Then, she looked at the girl, once again not sensing a deep hypocrisy at feeling betrayed by the girl's deception. She touched the girl, and Rapunzel disappeared into a puff of smoke. The sorceress had cast a spell on the girl, and instead of killing her immediately, she transported Rapunzel to the middle of the forest, pregnant with no provisions. The prince did survive the fall, and once he picked his way out of the thorns, he couldn't even find his way back to his horse, let alone his kingdom. When he did manage to get to a village days later, no one believed the prince could be this scarred and blind man in dirty, torn clothes. He fell to begging in the streets to survive, and he lived that way for many years. In time, the prince adapted to being blind and never let lack of sight stop him from searching the world for Rapunzel. It was immeasurably more difficult, but he persevered. He found himself alone in the forest one day. He thought his mind might be playing tricks on him when he heard a singing off in the distance. He ran to the voice, running into trees, tripping over rocks, scraping himself on the thorns he didn't care. If he had even the tiniest chance of finding her, he had to try. He burst out of the tree line and into a clearing. The singing stopped. He stood up, reaching out, asking for Rapunzel, but there was only silence. Then he heard, through deep sobs, you, you found me. He felt a hand on his face, and she embraced him. After years of searching and praying, he had found her again. Her tears healed his eyes and face, and he could see her living in a little cottage, alone with their twins. Yes, they had twins, and the three had somehow survived those tough early days in the forest together. The next day, they left their small house, and he led them to his kingdom. There, they were married, and Rapunzel became a princess, and eventually the queen. I think it's safe to say that, after all they had been through together, even a rough, normal life would count as happily ever after, if it didn't include being thrown six stories and blinded, or having to raise twins alone in a forest. Mm -hmm.
was an interesting story. It had a happy ending, but only after many, many trials. Also, there wasn't really any justice, which seems kind of rare for the Grimm stories. The sorceress escaped any sort of retribution for her crime, and Rapunzel's parents will never know that their daughter had actually survived her stint with the witch, and is now a queen. It's a bit of a tragic happy ending. Apparently people thought that it was dangerous to deny a pregnant woman any food she craved, and the Grimm story says that the husband was worried his wife would die if she didn't get the Rapunzel from the witch's garden in the beginning, which kind of puts that very uneven deal into perspective. This version of Rapunzel was influenced by an earlier Neapolitan story called Parsley, which was collected by the writer Giambattista Basile. In that, the woman steals parsley from an ogress, and it's just a very different story from this version. There's a chase scene at the end, where parsley is throwing enchanted nuts that turn into things like dogs and lions, which end up eating the ogress. It's honestly a crazy story, even for this podcast, but I've linked it in the discussion post on the site if you want to read it. We'll jump into the next story right after the break. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. So if you like listening to this, you probably like listening to stories from world literature. Well, with Audible, you can listen to actual full-length books wherever. Audible.com provides over 180,000 titles from leading audiobook publishers. Whatever your taste, they have it. Their app is free and works on iPhones, iPads, Androids, Windows phones, Kindle Fire, and with over 500 MP3 players. So basically everywhere. And with Audible, you own the books so you can access your books anytime and anywhere, right from your smartphone. They also have a great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like a book you chose, you can exchange it for another title, anytime, no questions asked. I was looking around for book facts from the Middle Ages and found that medieval English kings really didn't read books. They liked to have a trusted performer read to them privately. So if you listen to a book from audible.com, you're basically living like royalty. I'm doing another cross-country drive here soon, and I've already gotten The Once and Future King by T.H. White because, no, I've never read that incredibly popular version of the Arthurian legends. I'm going to fix that, though, and it'll probably have the correct pronunciations. So yeah, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com legends to start your free trial today. Again, you can show your support for this podcast and get a free 30-day trial at audible.com legends. The next story today is called The Brave Little Tailor. The tailor sawed off a piece of bread. It was a nice day today, with the sun and the cool summer morning air coming in through the open window. He slathered the jam on the bread, but then looked back at the vest he had been working on. He looked at the sticky, amazing jam, and then at his delicate thread. He should really finish the stitching before eating the jam. He set the thick bread and the jam down on the counter and resumed stitching. It ended up taking longer than he thought it would, and he was salivating at the smell wafting over. He was also growing nervous at the sound of buzzing because there were way too many flies hanging out on the ceiling. As the stitching on the vest continued, the day grew hotter and the bread more fragrant. More and more flies came in and perched on the ceiling. Hey, who invited you? The tailor asked, waving them away. Unfortunately for the tailor, flies do not speak German. Flies do speak the language of sweet, delicious jam, however, and they flew in off the street in droves the moment the tailor sat back down to work on his vest. Nervously, the tailor watched the flies dive closer and closer to the bread. He narrowed his eyes. Not today. He calmly set down the vest and slipped his hand into his workstation to pull out a piece of scrap fabric. He would be the hero this bread deserves and the one it needs right now. He jumped up 
put one foot on a chair, and reached for the ceiling with a fabric in hand to smash as many flies as he could. He did, and the insects fled the tailor's house. He found himself standing there, and opened his palm to see not five, not six, but seven flies smashed in the fabric. My goodness, the tailor exclaimed. So that's what sort of man I am. A hero. The tailor admired his own bravery. Seven at once? He was used to killing flies. But this was unheard of. He said to himself that the whole town, nay, the whole world, must learn of this. He looked around. The workshop was suddenly too small to hold his valor. But how will the world know? He looked at his needle and thread and at a large belt he had hanging up on the wall. That's how. However long it would take to do this sort of thing, the tailor worked hard at stitching very large, prominent letters onto the belt that read, Seven at one stroke. He put it on and began packing for his adventure. Unfortunately, he didn't have much, and he only found a small piece of cheese to put in his pocket. It didn't matter, though. His destiny was much bigger than the small shop, or the humble, yet respectable, life of a tailor. No, he was a hero now, and the world needed a hero. He left and ventured out into the wide world. As an aside, I don't know whose vest he was working on, but that person is not getting it back. I can see the person showing up at the locked tailor's house, wondering if he'll ever be able to wear his favorite vest again. Our hero was walking along the road, probably regretting putting cheese in his front pocket on a hot summer day, when a bird shot out from a bush and burrowed deep into his chest pocket going after the cheese. The tailor shrugged. It was sweaty and melty anyway. He wasn't going to eat it, but now he had a bird friend as well. His legend grew. He walked up the path of a mountain. He climbed throughout the morning and into the afternoon until he reached the top. And he saw a giant there, looking down at him. The tailor walked up to him without any fear. The tailor asked the giant if he wanted to come along with him, so the giant could try his luck in the wide world as well. As the tailor's sidekick, the giant looked down in disbelief. Go with you. I'm doing just fine. Besides, to me, you're like a little baby in ratty clothes. Is that cheese on your shirt? The tailor chuckled and unbuttoned his jacket. Here, you can read about what sort of man I am, he said to the giant. And the little tailor flashed his belt, which said, seven at one stroke. The giant looked at the tailor, then at the belt, then the tailor, then the belt. He began to feel some small bit of respect for the little man. If this little guy could kill seven men in one stroke, maybe the giant had misjudged him. It certainly explained his brazen confidence when talking to a giant at the top of a mountain. The giant said, seven at once, huh? Impressive, but how about we test your prowess? Here, the giant picked up a stone and squeezed it until water came out. If you really have strength, the giant said, do the same. The tailor looked around, realizing that he was immediately out of his depth. Obviously, he couldn't match a giant in strength, but maybe he could outsmart him. The tailor smiled and bent down to the ground in search of a stone. When the giant briefly looked away, the tailor slipped what was left of the cheese out of his pocket and made it look like he picked it up off the ground. The bird, apparently liking the pocket, stayed in there. The giant didn't think anything of it and watched the little tailor pretending to strain. 
The giant's smile faded when he saw greasy liquid begin to pour from the tailor's hand. The tailor finished and wiped his hand. Looking at the grease that had come from the sweaty cheese, the tailor said to the giant, considerably more than you, hmm? The giant was confused and started to get a little worried. Okay, he said, here's another one. I'm going to take a stone and throw it up in the air. We'll see who can throw a stone higher. The little tailor smiled. He had an idea, and he told the giant that he would throw a stone so high that it would never come down. The giant threw his, and it was a fairly respectable giant throw. The little tailor then pulled the bird from his pocket and bent to the ground. With a little more sleight of hand, he pretended to pluck a rock. He looked at the giant and flung the bird high in the air. The giant watched the tiny object go up and up and then continue to rise. A minute passed and then another. The tailor looked at the giant and said, we can continue to stand here, but I think it's obvious that the rock isn't coming back down. The giant was surprised. Okay, just one more test. The next test consisted of them carrying a tree together, and the tailor insisted that the giant place it on his shoulders so that he couldn't look behind him. The giant did all the work in carrying the tree, and the tailor just sat on the tree as the giant dragged it. When they got to the destination, the tailor jumped off before the giant got out from under the tree, and that was that. The giant had a growing amount of respect for the little tailor, but he was wary. This odd little man might just be super strong by the way he was challenging the giant. The giant might just be able to reach out a hand and pummel the tailor to death right here. But nothing about this little man had been predictable so far. He invited the little tailor back to his dwelling and asked the man if he wanted to join his giant troop. The tailor was ecstatic. Of course he wanted to join a giant troop. First seven flies at once, and now giant friends, he thought to himself. They would sing songs of this day. Unfortunately, this invitation was less of a kind gesture and more of an opportunity for the giant to get this odd little man surrounded by his giant friends. We'll see how they treat their house guests right after this. This episode is also brought to you by Loot Crate. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box for cool geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. Basically, if you've understood a single nerdy reference I've made on this podcast, check out Loot Crate. And you can get four to eight items that include apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-kind items, and licensed stuff from Star Wars, Marvel, Doctor Who, The Legend of Zelda, and others. Loot Crate is more than just a subscription service, though. It's an entire community that shares the experience of unboxing each month's crate. And Loot Crate guarantees $40 in value for each crate, and sometimes it's a lot more. Every month there's a different theme, and everything is curated around that theme. April's theme is Quest, which is perfect for this podcast. It'll have exclusive items from Labyrinth, Harry Potter, History Channel's Vikings, and so Ragnar, and Uncharted 4. And, of course, each box includes a t-shirt. I know, I know. Since it will include stuff from the saga of Ragnar Lothbrook, we were all hoping that it would include Ragnar's hairy breeches, because that's what Ragnar Lothbrook means in Old Norse, Ragnar shaggy pants. I guess a t-shirt is slightly more useful than frozen hairy Viking pants. Remember, you only have until April 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive the Quest Crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcratecom legends to save $3 on your new subscription today. The 
The giants gave the little tailor dinner and showed him a large, luxurious bed for him to sleep in. Luxurious for a giant, that is. The little tailor kept finding himself wedged in the lumps of the bed, and so, in the middle of the night, he got up and took his large pillow and just lay down in the corner of the room. After such a long day, he fell into a sleep so deep that he didn't even stir when a group of giants entered. What the tailor hadn't noticed that evening were the sideways glances the giants were giving him during dinner, or the whispers between them. He was content to enjoy their company and marvel at his new life. They had other plans for his life, however, and in the night they brought iron bars and gathered around his bed and pounded it until it was just a pile of wood, blankets, and feathers. They weren't about to take chances fighting this little man who could throw a rock into space, crush a stone into greasy water, and help a giant move. Content that the mangled body of the little tailor was among the splinters and linen, the giants left, saying that they'd get to cleaning it up in the morning. The next morning, they went out for berries before getting to the cleaning. They were shocked when, walking back to their home, they ran into the little tailor, alive and well. Hey, the little tailor said, so I woke up and my bed was crushed to pieces. I just want to let you know that I didn't do it. To the little tailor's disbelief, his giant crew screamed in shock that he had survived a beating from several giants, dropped their berries, and ran off in all directions in the forest, never to return. The tailor, thinking that this about face was pretty strange, picked up the berries and just continued on. Some people, or giants, apparently just couldn't handle being around greatness. He wandered until he found a town surrounding a castle. Given that he had no money and had walked for a whole day, he laid down on the sun-warmed grass outside of the town and slept. A couple hours later, the king's men saw a crowd gathering around someone sleeping in a field. One of the king's men pushed through the people to see the little tailor asleep. His jacket had come open, and everyone could see not only his cheese-stained shirt, but his wide belt that read, Seven at one stroke. The king's men gasped. He's killed seven men with one stroke? It's on a belt, and no one can simply embroider something if it's not true. The man ran to the king. The sun was beginning to set as the little tailor stretched out on the grass. It had been a good rest, and now it was time to begin the next step on his journey, whatever that next step looked like. He blinked awake and saw not only a crowd, but a well-dressed ambassador from the king. The official waved the crowd off and approached the tailor. He offered such a warrior as the little man in front of him a military appointment as the king's highest-ranking general. Hmm? The tailor said, Oh, yes, that's why I came, to seek that. Sure, I accept, and I'm ready to enter the king's service. That night, the little tailor slept in his magnificent new quarters. Now this, the tailor thought, this was a place fitting of the valor of a man who could kill seven flies in one stroke. He was given the command of many soldiers. Soldiers who were outraged when they heard of it, but not for the reason that you might think. They were outraged because their commanding officer was too powerful. They came before the king and told him that they must be dismissed from duty because what would happen if their new officer became angry with them? If he could kill seven men in one stroke, well... No one could stand against him. And that's when the king started to worry. What had he done? He was either going to lose his whole army, or worse, be forced to dismiss his new general. But then, what if the general became angry? 
no army of the king could stand against a man who could kill seven men in one stroke. He had to find a way to do away with a little tailor he didn't know was a little tailor. As it turned out, there were way too many giants in medieval Germany. Some hung out harmlessly at the top of mountains, and others robbed, murdered, and pillaged. The ones in this king's territory were the latter, and two of particular note were causing a lot of trouble for him. They had killed everyone the king sent against them. A whole army. It would be the perfect way to get rid of the general he had just hired. Sure, the little man had done nothing, but now he must die. Riding to the challenge, the tailor was pleased at this new development. Kill two giants? Why not? In three days, he had killed seven flies at once, scared off a whole gang of giants, and been appointed as a general of the king. Might as well try his hand at killing giants, too. Besides, the king had promised his daughter, and half of the kingdom, if the little tailor could complete this task. With the tailor's current run of luck, he would be stupid not to try. The king had even given the tailor 100 knights to go and kill the giants. They spent a day riding into the forest, and when they got there, the tailor insisted that he be able to go in first, and assess the situation. Since all the knights were under his command, and because they really didn't want to fight two giants, they agreed, and the tailor went into the dark forest alone. Ten minutes into the forest, he found the giants laying there, next to each other, asleep. The little tailor looked all around, and then he knew what he must do. He wouldn't even need these knights. He ducked away from the giants and scooped rocks so that his pockets were almost filled. Slowly and quietly, climbed a tree just above the giants. At the top, he leaned out and threw a large rock at the giant on his left. The giant awoke and looked next to him. He shoved the giant on the right and asked why he had hit him in the head. What do you mean? I was sleeping too. You saw me sleeping. Well, don't do it again. Okay, whatever. I didn't do it the first time and I'm going back to sleep, the other giant said. They both settled down and went back to sleep. As soon as the little tailor could see that they were asleep, he took another big rock and flung it down at the giant on his right. As you can probably guess, he thought the giant on the left had taken revenge for the perceived slight and the tension grew. Well, the little tailor waited until the giants were asleep again and then he took the biggest rock. He dropped it right on the head of one of the giants and this time it even drew blood. The giant was stunned, but he felt the blood and thought that it was just too much. He attacked his friend. The fight, which I can only imagine was epic, is described in two sentences. Basically, they grew more and more angry with each other until they were tearing up trees and hitting each other with them. They eventually killed each other, and the place where they were sleeping was turned into a clearing. Save, luckily, for the lone tree in which the little tailor was hiding. Descending to the ground, the tailor looked at all the trees lying around and the one that he had been hiding in, still standing, and remarked that, wow, that was lucky. He drew his sword and walked up to the giants, stabbing them both in the chest a few times. He walked out of the forest, raised his bloody sword to the knights, and said, look what I did. Back at the castle, sitting before the king, the tailor reminded the king of his agreement. The king looked at this little, apparently invincible warrior, and he thought of just one more thing. The tailor had been camping in the forest for weeks. He wasn't afraid of a unicorn, but it was taking forever to find the beast. 
The king had given him this challenge and, when compared to scaring off giants, killing two, and most valiantly of all, killing seven flies with one blow, catching a unicorn, was nothing. Apparently, it had been stalking the forest, skewering people with its horn. The tailor heard something. He looked up and saw the white of the unicorn on the other side of the clearing. It saw him and snorted. The tailor rose to his feet. The unicorn was bigger than he thought it would be. He was expecting some magical creature with a flowing mane, but this was just a beast. It was a large horse with a horn in its head. The little tailor backed up slowly until he hit a tree. The unicorn walked out into the clearing, lowered its head, and charged. The tailor had to will himself to stay there, to wait. He wanted to jump, to run, but he only had to wait a few moments longer. He watched the unicorn running toward him, and his hand shook ever so slightly. He saw the tip of its horn lined up with his chest. It would kill him. Except, when it was less than a few feet away, the tailor planted his right foot and dove left, and the unicorn buried its horn deep into the tree, and it stuck there. The unicorn pulled back, but it was trapped. The little tailor jumped to his feet and looked at the beast. He stroked its side as it snapped its teeth at him. He looped the rope around it, thought about it, and looped another around its snout. Then he took an axe and chopped the wood around the horn, freeing the beast. It fought, but he was able to drag it out of the forest and back to the king. Okay, so because this is a fairy tale and fairy tales love threes, there is one more task for the little tailor can finally marry the princess. It's basically the same as the unicorn, but this time it's a giant rampaging boar. This kingdom had a lot of issues. The tailor pulled the same trick he had with the unicorn, except this time he stood in front of an open door to a chapel. He jumped out of the way at the last moment, and the boar went into the chapel. The little tailor slammed the door, trapping the boar inside. After several hours of smashing everything in the chapel to pieces, the boar eventually tired enough for the tailor and a huntsman to get in there, and quite literally hogtie him. When they brought the boar back, the king could see that he was out of options. He gave his daughter in marriage to the little tailor. He took some solace in the fact that this was a great warrior and the savior of his kingdom. His daughter, though, despised her new husband. He was ill-mannered, and it was like he didn't know about how to behave in a proper society. Worst of all, he spent time talking to everyone, from the cook to the king's armor-bearer even peasants on the street. It was shameful. He even talked in his sleep. Something about doublets and pantaloons and yard measures. Something he knew very well. Then, one day, when she was being measured for a new dress, the tailor barked at an apprentice about doublets and pantaloons and yard measures, and it clicked into place. The princess was married to a peasant, and he had conned his way into inheriting the kingship. Of course, she had to prove it. If she could prove the man was a mere tailor and not the slayer of seven or whatever that gaudy belt of his said, then the spell might be broken. He would be revealed for the fraud that he was and no man would be afraid to confront him. She sent agents secretly, far and wide, looking for a tailor that had disappeared from his village. A few weeks later, when returned, the agent found the village, only about a two-day walk over the mountains, 
where Taylor had disappeared a few months back. The agent of the princess ran into a man who was still waiting for his vest back from the tailor. Did the agent have any idea when he was coming back? The man was a peasant and only had like two vests. The agent described the missing tailor, and the man confirmed it. The little tailor had fooled them all. The princess went to her father. The king had always hated the little tailor a little bit, and even more now that he knew he was a little tailor. He called together his best warriors. They, too, were tired of living in fear of the now prince and his seemingly limitless powers. The king conspired that that night, his daughter would slip out when she was sure the man was asleep, and the warriors would go in, club him until he was unconscious, put him in a bag, and throw him bound into the cargo hold of the next ship traveling to the other side of the world. That night, the men waited outside the door with their clubs. Soon, they heard snoring and the creak of the floor when the princess walked out. The little tailor began talking in his sleep, where he was yelling at an apprentice about doublets and whatnot. Didn't his apprentice know, the tailor said in his sleep, he had caught a wild boar, captured a unicorn, killed two giants, scared off a whole giant gang, and his most valiant feat of all, killing seven with one stroke. What did he have to fear from the men gathered outside his door? The men outside the door paused. He somehow had learned of their plot, and he wasn't sleeping. He was ready for them, and listing off all of his feats, it was too much. They refused to go in the room, and, opting not to maintain any dignity or gravitas, ran as fast as they could in the other direction. When he heard them run off, the little tailor could stop holding his breath in anxiety. He had learned of this plot from his friendship with the common people of the castle, the people that were invisible to the king and to the princess, but who knew all of their secrets. Rumors that he was a simple tailor or no, no one dared to touch the little tailor after that. The bravest warriors would only stay loyal to him, and the king himself wouldn't try to harm his person. In just a few short months, he went from a mere peasant tailor to crown prince of the realm, all thanks to seven dead flies. Now, this story is interesting. I've searched every folklore academic database I can to try to get a reading on it, and so far, I've come up empty-handed. To me, this is like the Aladdin tale without any supernatural helpers. This little tailor went from tailor to king, all on his own ingenuity. He was smart, and in several cases, he turned to being small, what some would deem as a negative trait, to his advantage. Killing seven flies at once, using the tools and scraps he had, was big to a tailor whose world was just his shop. But dealing with giants and beasts in the larger world required the same ingenuity, cleverness, and determination, just on a much bigger scale. I like this story because he used his abilities each time to do great things, no matter the circumstances. He started small, and his successes started small, but they were meaningful in the sphere in which he found himself. You don't have to be a general or a crown prince fighting monsters. You can be a small, simple tailor killing insects. Whatever you do, though, seek to be the best, even if you're simply a poor tailor killing flies in your shop. And who knows, that might give you the confidence to make a bird friend scare off some giants, and catch a unicorn. That's it for this week. Next week, we're going back into the Viking sagas to tell the story of Arrow Odd, a legendary Viking and the troll that has vowed to hunt him to the ends of the earth. 
I want to say thanks to Chafunk, myself, June Summer, B Center 81, McLarence Undiff, J Mac, Papa Shanti, Little Cricket, at Perry30, Izzy Goat, Devin Okender, Alana Threfall, Case Guscezi, JG Wong, Andrew E, Mia Valmasi, Guria 10, Knintet, Siriana, Jen C, The Argonaut522, Melissa C, MP Bean, I'm a butt, Quakerine, Rami Ness, Kelton, Love Machine, Sadie Oiken, Jen Renster, TJ Sophie, Legion92, Kate herself, Brooks C, BD Allen, AD Lad, and Kate Monster for becoming new members in March of 2016. Okay, so in interest of not taking up minutes, we are still not done with the membership shoutouts from March of 2016. Me reading the names of the new members was sort of a holdover from the $1 option on Patreon, and given the number of members after the podcast kind of blew up last month, I don't think I'll be able to keep up. So here's what we're going to do. I will say all the current members, but only those that join up to today, April 13th, 2016. For consolation, I will put out an extra members-only short next month. I am completely aware that this is an amazing problem to have, so thank you all so much. I am extremely grateful, and you keep this podcast going. And, once again, amazing segue. There's also a membership thing going on on the site. For less than the price of a pair of hander pants, which are underpants for your hands, I have no idea what's going on with this one, I posted a link to this extremely awkward garment on the discussion post so you can see just how weird these things are. Anyway, for less than the price of hander pants, you can support the podcast and get extra episodes and source pack ebooks. If you're interested, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Itachi, which, if you know Japanese, just means weasel. It's obviously then from Japanese folklore. In Japanese folklore, animals, when they get very old, can turn into supernatural creatures. Once the weasel reaches an unspecified old age, it then takes on the ability to shapeshift and several other magical abilities. For instance, if it sits on its hind legs, it's said to be bewitching a human, trying to get him or her to leave food out, or, you know, just looking insanely cute, trying to get him or her to leave food out. In groups, they're not so much cute as incredibly chaotic and destructive. If several old, magical weasels gather together at night, they'll climb up onto each other's shoulders, and weasels stacked in this very cute column then catch fire. This stacked pile of old rodents transforms into a pillar of fire that can erupt into a fiery whirlwind that can burn down an entire town. As I said, they're able to shapeshift, and they can choose many forms. Their favorite, though, is a little acolyte child who's in clothes that are way too big for him. He'll come up to you because he wants you to get him alcohol. Because little magical weasels, despite being able to transform into a column of fire and bewitch humans into giving them food, can't brew alcohol for themselves. So yes, if you have a pet weasel, keep an eye on him if he's getting a little old. Especially if that weasel disappears and a child in clothes that are too big for him comes up to you, wanting you to buy him beer. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There's a discussion post on the site, and links to all the music I used are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 